it will sound strange to say this. I'm still not quite sure, given what I've heard of your podcast, why I'm here. Since uh, since um, I, I take it from what I the the few things that I've heard that mostly you focus on thinking about horror films or weird horror films. Yes, that's correct. That is correct. Well, the the specific impetus for asking you one, or well, there's two reasons. One is um, the episode on Tetsuo, uh, the Iron Man, which is the one that we recorded at the start of the year. Uh, I used, I talked about uh, No Future. I talked about um, the concepts of sort of reproductive futurism in that because uh, one of the ways, because because I do very insistently read Tetsuo, the Iron Man, as being a queer film, mm-hmm. uh, and especially it having this apocalyptic almost nihilistic um ending to it um it felt not not that i think that your work is apocalyptic or nihilistic um that was apocalyptic in the sense of revelatory but uh it, it felt very fitting to use um that that text for uh for it and as well as that it's just it's a it's a fascinating book and i just thought god it'd be really cool if you got lee Aidman. well i'm happy to be here i just hope it won't disappoint your viewer your your auditors um well okay i will read the uh i'm probably just going to use um the audio from where we've already started because um that you because because you said interesting things about the podcast i will read uh i'll read the intro that i have prepared at the signal time will be out of joint Hello and welcome to Weird Signal. I'm Sean and I am today joined by Lee Edelman, Fletcher Professor of English Literature at Tufts University. Lee is the author of books including Homographesis, Essays in Gay Literary and Cultural Theory, No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive, and most recently Bad Education, Why Queer Theory Teaches Us Nothing. Once again, thank you for uh, joining me. And how are you? How are you today? I'm doing well and doing the better for being here chatting with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Oh, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Yes, we, we, we managed to get there in the end, despite despite the machinations of Zencaster and uh, Google Chrome. <laughs> well, technology is always our enemy. Indeed, indeed. So, well, we have a, a list of questions here, obviously, and I imagine, I imagine our conversation will go beyond them, but they but they will give us a give us a nice structure to start with. So, uh, quite a simple question in some ways, by Matt, by, but uh, I imagine this could be quite an expensive answer. The first question I have is simply, what what do we mean when we talk about queer theory? Well, you're absolutely right, Sean. It's an, a seemingly simple question that is virtually impossible to answer in a single answer. So, I'm going to give you several answers. And I'm going to try to frame it so that people who would need to ask that question will be able to understand the answer to the question. So the first thing that I would say is that on a, on a straightforward level, queer theory is a set of attempts to understand and to think through the ways the structure of reality is constructed to the exclusion of whatever is conceptualized as non-normative, foreign, or incompatible with the logic of everyday life. So that in that sense, it really is a theory of the queer, of whatever is made queer, of whatever is cast out and thus becomes the outcast. If we start there, we can see that queer theory as such emerged as an academic field of inquiry the end of the 1980s, and it did so in response to a number of things, including the resurgence of 
an intensified and exacerbated homophobia uh, in the Western uh, nations in particular, that was um, reinforced by a corollary epidemic of HIV disease. So that these, these two together created not only the need for massive modes of resistance on the part of those persons who identified as gay or lesbian or bisexual or trans or queer, but also for new ways of thinking about how the structures of social organization generated not only homophobia, but also the uh, medicalization that HIV disease would reinforce as always associated with the non-heteronormative. So from that point of view, queer begins with its roots in the uh, struggles of gay and queer, in quotation marks, communities to try to find a place from which to resist the active and willful attempts to deny their reality and to be complicit with the continuation of an epidemic that was actually destroying their lives. But as it developed, an interesting thing happened, and that is that the more you begin to study and think about queerness, the less queerness is localizable. It can't stay just at gay and lesbian and bisexual lives for the very reason that all of us recognize in the very attempt to denominate what we used to call the gay community. What used to be lesbian and gay became quickly lesbian, gay, bisexual. Then it became lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans. Now we have LGBTQIAA+. And that's because every attempt to denominate the whole, W-H-O-L-E, always has a whole H-O-L-E within it. There's always something left out. And so queerness had to quickly recognize the necessity of being the, the, the localization not of some positive identity, but the localization of the whole H-O-L-E in identity itself. That's a fascinating response. Um, maybe a slightly cheeky question, but at the, very, at the, at the, at the start of that um, answer, you said this is about the structures of, of reality. And maybe a strange question, but what, what do we mean by reality here? Well, well what I mean, and and we'll see whether or not we mean it, what I mean is the way in which any given community constructs a framework for reading the meanings of their experience. So there is no singular reality, and there is no universal reality, but individual collectives generate norms of interpreting or understanding their reality. And of course, political conflict is always the conflict of competing visions of reality. So in a sense, the very fact that we have politics is an acknowledgement that reality is always already constructed through a normative agreement among certain members of a given collective, but that that agreement is not universally shared. And therefore, in the contestation over what will con- constitute reality, we're forced to come up with the fact that everyone's, everyone's accounts of reality are lacking. There's always a gap 
in the way in which we try to construct a frame to make sense of the world, to make the world mean. And from my point of view, and this has been the tenor of my work, queerness names what undoes or what ironizes any attempt to construct a stable framework for meaning. Because the queer is always the foreigner, the outsider, the alien, um, in terms of the sorts of things you talk about in your podcast more more generally, the, the monstrous, the figure that can't be incorporated. And the monstrosity of queerness to that extent is not in some positive feature. It's not localizable even in um, non-heteronormative sexuality. Queerness, as I understand it, has no positive characteristics because in every different community, the figure who can be queered will have different characteristics. And the queer community itself, where again, whenever I use the word community, it's always in quotation marks because it always seems to me that community is a fantasy, but the queer community itself has its own queers, those it casts out. And it therefore becomes incumbent upon us to think not about queerness as a substantive, as in I am queer, but queerness as a, uh, a placeholder for that which diacritically in any given uh, framework of social organization is conceptualized as foreign to it. Yes, the one thing in particular um, that, that comes to mind there is, um, is is the, not uniquely, but it feels like the primarily British phenomenon of, of the turf of the trans-exclusionary radical feminist, so-called, in that the of, oftentimes what I've, what I've seen, and I, and in in British academic philosophy, it, it should be said, would be articulations in in defence of of and of, of anti-trans politics from a feminist perspective um, that would often make appeals to um, the lesbian identity as a concrete uh, as a concrete political, social, historical, biological reality uh, with the, uh, with the with the trans woman. Um, and often, you know, specifically for trans women being the, being the, the monstered figure here, being this uh, this a threat to a stable singularity of identity uh, that the feminist movement, uh, lesbian liberation, had uh, had constructed or had um, or had been able to uh, defend and articulate against um, heteropatriarchy. But um, and indeed, like something that. Um, and, and indeed, it feels like that dramatizes that po- uh, that point there, and that that um, the queer, if you know, the queer as the whole within the whole, um, that this that this is some a figure that exists or or a negativity that exists, including in what we would call um, politically progressive, you know, nominally politically progressive movements, obviously. I think you're absolutely right, and I think that what that gestures toward is the way that. All of us, no matter how, in quotation marks, queer may we, we may think we are, all of us have things that we want to defend as our identities or, as it were, our turf. And the, the turf that we want to defend is often as entrenched in our conservative will to hold on to the reality that we have known as it would be on the part of those people whose realities we want to change. So the the lesbian activists who had no problem saying that the heteronormative framework 
within which the truth of sexuality was articulated had to open up and expand to include the reality and the normalcy of lesbian experience, now nonetheless don't want to, in some cases, open up the framework of woman to recognize that woman is not any more than uh, sexuality, a stable, fixed category innate and given from on high, but a construct, and that the conservatism with which we cling, or some of us may cling, to various forms of identity is always at odds with the negativity that queerness introduces. It's just another way of being anti-queer. I should say, however, just to to add a a more depressing note to this, um, that It is also the case, and this is what makes queerness so fascinating and so complicated to talk about, that insofar as queerness is is always going to be allied with anti-normativity, it's not going to have any positive characteristics, there are situations in which the um, trans-exclusionary radical feminists can occupy the ground of queerness in relation to a normative liberal dispensation and can see themselves in the position of the victimized as opposed to uh, the majority that is insistent on a particular discourse that they are resisting. And, and, and this is not unique to TERFs. I mean, it, one of the things that I argued in a paper I gave several years ago was that in some sense, Donald Trump was the first queer president of the United States queer because what he really unleashed was a radically anti-normative force. And the resistance to Donald Trump always took the form in the United States of statements that would be repeated endlessly on mainstream media, but also on the progressive left. This is not normal. And the very frequency with which that was the criterion against which Trump was measured made clear how deeply invested even progressives are in the maintenance of certain norms. Mm. Absolutely. And one of the things that... um that became very striking as 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 as, as I think as this campaign went on um, initially in 2016 was how um, liberal, liberals and progressives would focus on elements of uh, Trump's personality and Trump's character, which were that came across as um, highly theatrical, highly performative, and um, and also being indicative of a kind of of a crassness and a vulgarity in his in his aesthetics. I I remember myself as you know as a complete snob as all we English are, no matter what we say, <laughs> being horrified to learn that he has his steaks well done with ketchup and saying stuff like, considering that with, with his vast fortune, the kind the kind of meat that that man could procure, and he chooses to do this with it, disgusting, disgraceful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to confess, here is where we differ, <laughs> because my if I were having a steak, it would probably be well done with ketchup too. So it might that be simply an American vice. But uh, but you're right that that you know he he was associated in a certain sense with vice and with uh, the vulgarity of it. So that um, you had this strange spectacle of liberals and progressives up in arms because, and and I'm not saying without reason, but up in arms because here was a man who was relentless in his sexual appetites and 
as vulgar as a borscht belt comedian and as eager to be seen as a comedian as anyone from the borscht belt would have been, but was nonetheless going to be taking over the reins of the American government in all its seriousness, in all of its high seriousness, from the point of view of those of us at any rate who are consigned to live here, and and thus um, was going to be uh, defiling the office, as many subsequently claimed he did. So, um, so yes, I think it's important to recognize just how inconsistent, how um, um, incapable in a certain way all of us are of political consistency. We say that we have political stances that are based on principles, but mostly we have political identifications around which we shape our principles. Hmm. Well, 15 minutes later, moving into question two. <laughs> um, dear me. So uh, qu- um, second question I have here is, um, how does queer theory stand in relation to that thing that we call post-structuralism? Well, there's so many genealogies of queer theory one could give that this one will necessarily be a truncated version. But in answer to that question, one could say that insofar as queer theory and the word theory here is a giveaway, emerges in relation to academic institutions. It largely developed out of three things. Feminist theory, as it entered the academy in the 1970s, black studies, and at least I'm speaking about the American Academy, black studies as they entered the American Academy in the 1970s, and deconstruction slash post-structuralism as it entered the American Academy in the 1970s. One of the things that brings all three of those together is in fact a place, and that's historically Yale University, where you know Paul DeMann and uh, J. Hillis Miller and Jacques Derrida were, were really bringing the impetus of French post-structuralism to bear in an American context where it became deconstruction. And at that moment at Yale, I was a student, Judith Butler was a student, Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick was a student, David Miller was a student, um, uh, Carla Fritchero was, I mean, we could go on, all of these people who would subsequently play some role in thinking through queer theory were there. And what it did is it galvanized ways of thinking about how meaning itself is a product that is unstable, that it's not um, something that you discern. It's not, Paul DeMann has an essay in which he says that once one general way of thinking about literary criticism is thinking about a box with an inside and an outside. And the goal of the critic is to open the box and let out into the outside the meaning that's contained in it. But he said, what if the idea of the key that opens that box is a key to which to a box in which there is nothing but because there's a key we have to imagine that there is something inside the box and thus meaning gets produced not as the truth that was always already concealed in the box but what happens in the process of trying to confront the the difficulty the necessity of interpreting literary language or language as such. So that recognition that in a certain sense, language, like a poem or a novel, is to some extent a closet. 
It holds something inside it that is not transparent and self-evident. And thus, just as it's necessary to open that closet to let meaning out, so the meaning of sexuality may be one of the things that the closet of language is always concealing, but not in the way that we normally think, not in the way that we think, oh, here is a text. Let's read this text and find out the truth of the sexuality of the author. But let's read this text and find out not that the author was queer, but that language is queer, that queerness is about the way in which the um, the very tools with which we think the world is constructed are always also subverting the solidity and the reliability of any construction of the world. Again, a fascinating response there. Um, you've, all, you've, you've, you've somewhat preempted the, uh, the next question I was going to ask, which was how did you encounter uh, these <laughs> ideas? Uh, so, um, so, uh, but, 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 so instead we'll... Well, this was actually the second half of that question, which, which one that we will use here. Who was it that was inspiring you when you when you at you're at Yale and you are encountering sort of encountering these uh, these ideas? And and um, although what I've written here is who most inspired and influenced you and why, but I, but I want to I, I would like to sort of like maybe as a little bit of a personal question actually. So what did it what did it mean for you sort of um, um, encountering? Um, encountering post-structuralism, encountering um, Lacanian psychoanalytic theory and deconstruction and so on, uh, and then being in a position where you can queer it, where you can work with these things in a queer way. Well, since you framed it, Sean, as a personal question, I'll give you a personal answer. <laughs> um, and the personal answer is that actually the person who was most influential in my process of developing into the critic that I am is a fellow student of mine at Yale at that time, Joseph Litvak, um, who has been my partner for the past 40 odd years. Um, he was a student in the comparative literature program. I was a student in English. Now, at that moment, English and comp lit were like oil and water. Um, English was the home of the reactionaries who were resisting being dragged into the, the contestations of contemporary literary theory, for the most part. And comp lit was the place where Paul Deman and Jacques Derrida and Shoshana Fellman and other theorists and critics were were generating this, this exciting new mode of thinking that would soon become such a, a major and divisive aspect of academic life. It was my admiration for the way in which Joe was working and thinking that led me to want to bring myself forward from my comfort zone in an English department and to begin to open myself up to these new ways of thinking. And in doing so, I encountered not only the brilliance of his work, but also um, if there was one critic at Yale whose work at that, who was at Yale at that time, whose work um, was decisive in shaping, I, I would like to think, the, the tenor of mine, it was Barbara Johnson who as a student of demands and a translator of Derrida's also was the figure who first in a major way made deconstructive made deconstruction think in made deconstruction think in terms of gender and brought the political emphasis of uh, black studies feminist studies 
and gender studies um, under the microscope of deconstructive analyses of language. So that really was an inspiration to me. She was also one of the major figures for those of your readers, those of your readers who have encountered her brilliant essay, The Frame of Reference. She's one of the first major readers of uh, Lacan in relation to Derrida, um, thinking together in that essay, thinking in that essay about them together by reading um, Lacan's account of Poe's The Purloined Letter in comparison to Derrida's account of The Purloined Letter. Fascinating. One question I I, I have um, coming from that actually is um, what we would broadly call postmodern theory or postmodern uh, continental philosophy kind of enters into enters into the anglophone world through comparative literature through English departments you know it's often being said which is which is sometimes presented as one of the reasons for the the tension or even just the outright hostility that you encounter in philosophy departments, like pure philosophy departments, to all of this French nonsense, you know. So like my my, my own academic background, I have, uh, uh, it was, you know, being a product of the English university system was um, being in the institution, was the University of East Anglia and the University of Sussex, where I got my uh, bachelor's and master's respectively. These being institutions where it was often uh, a, a an exercise of finding whatever opportunities I could in order to engage with existentialism, phenomenology, um, Heidegger, Heideggerianism, and so on. Uh, meaning, sort of, d- despite having a podcast that um, deals at points almost exclusively with the likes of uh, Deleuze, I've never been taught him, for instance, formally mm-hmm. ever. Um, um, never the, the, the only continental figure, the only two continental figures I had formal academic teaching, and now think of it with Nietzsche and Heidegger, actually. But, um, mm-hmm. but, but, anyways, the, the question I wanted to ask was, um, how does um, how do you, how do you feel modern philosophy, modern academic philosophy, treats this 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 field of discourse that is that is queer theory? Well, first of all, um, I would say it does not at all surprise me that you got your degree from Sussex. I mean, I would have said, you know, if given your interests, that that was probably where you would have had to have had some formation, um, and thank goodness for that. Um, I can't speak to how globally the modern, the field of modern philosophy treats queer theory. I mean, I know there are people like Sarah Ahmed who um, is is working to, and and obviously Judith Butler, who have you know worked to make philosophy more um, receptive to queer theory, in part by for by the way that both of them have invented aspects of it, but. My own experience with philosophy departments has been that it has no relation to queer theory um, any more than it has any relation at this point to continental philosophy. In in my home institution, it used to be that you could at least take a course on Kant. I think you can't <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, and the total eradication of that whole aspect of philosophical thought, you know, speaks volumes to what has happened to culture, in quotation marks, at large, in terms of the diminution of every form of interpretive science in favor of 
anything that can claim the cachet of social science and thus the the desire of philosophy to become more data-driven and to become more in in the United States at any rate more epistemological is uh, is is part and parcel of something I talk about in the new book uh, bad education where which which largely places philosophy in opposition to psychoanalysis. And it uses Alain Badiou as one of the figures through which to do that, because Badiou is a, a, an out-and-out, thoroughgoing Platonician. I mean, he's, he's, in some senses, Plato's greatest living heir. And he is also, and this is what makes him such a fascinating figure for me, he's also a student of Lacan's. I mean, he identifies Lacan as one of his masters. But what he recognizes is that these are two completely incompatible masters. I mean, you can't be the servant of these two masters at the same time. And he makes very clear why that is. And he says, because philosophy cannot deal with jouissance. Jouissance and philosophy are antithetical. Philosophy always has to make sense of the jouissance, which is to say the, 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 thing that exceeds reason, that makes our rational faculties um, subordinate to it, the same way that the drive makes our uh, subjectivity uh, subordinate to it. So, um, so I think that the exclusion of queer theory is part of the same package of orientations that excludes continental philosophy and psychoanalysis from legitimacy in philosophy departments and in much of the academy at large, precisely because these are areas that deal with jouissance and that make clear the ways that jouissance jouissance shapes our experience. It's almost, in a certain sense, though, it almost sounds like uh, jouissance has a almost a mystical aspect to it. Um, uh, in some ways, is that is that a definition or a description you would you would resist, or do you think uh... it is a definition I would resist, or a description I would resist to this extent? Um, mystical suggests the presence of something that is positively locatable beyond the world or experience we're having, but jouissance is not something beyond the world that we're inhabiting. Jouissance is the result of the releasing or letting go of the constraints that make us think we understand the world that we're inhabiting. So jouissance only can be encountered or experienced within this world, and it has nothing to do with a beyond of this world. It's only a possibility because of the constraints upon it and not because it is an opening onto some plenum or fullness that you could have access to if you could just escape from those constraints. So uh, moving on, I'd like to talk about no future um because because like like i said at the beginning of our conversation that was that was you know it was using that text to, as a way of uh, talking about in, in in a rather muddled way i'll admit tetsu the iron man but was the uh the cat the catalyst for me reaching out so so can you summarize for us what 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 are the the key arguments and the themes in no future which and and is maybe sort of like a bit of an unfair question because it is a quite a quite a knotty work in some ways. Uh, just for the listener's sake, I believe you were saying 
naughty and not naughty, uh, but but I would accept either characterization as apt. Um, the basic argument of no future is that our social organization is predicated on the belief that social structures must endure, that they must survive, and that every social organization or community is constantly in danger of being dissipated or destroyed by what is its constitutive outside. Now, by constitutive outside, what I mean is and I'm sure you know this and many of your readers, but some might not, a constitutive outside is that without which the inside could not exist. So in order to exist as a community, you need something that's outside the community. But the community, so that that threat is necessary for the consolidation of community. Um, the, The emblem of the survival of the community is, no future argued, always what I call the figure of the child with a capital C. The child is the embodiment of the communal future. And thus, the whether or not children as such are respected or accorded any rights or privileges, as for instance, in 19th century England and America, they were not for the most part. Nonetheless, the child could still be the emblem of the social order's future itself. So, you know, um, even before there were child labor laws, you could weep about Tiny Tim or um, uh, Little Nell or uh, Little Eva. And in each case, that figure of the child would supersede the realities of living human children. Now, insofar as the child becomes the figural emblem of the continuity of a nation or a community, that child must have its own antithesis, its own figure of danger. And in the post-19th century world that Foucault gestures toward with his genealogy of the construction or invention of the homosexual, that antithesis of the child is the queer. And queerness is whatever threatens the survival of the child. So as we see in the moment we're living through now, there's a in the Western world, and I think, alas, not merely in the Western world, a global sexual panic that we're experiencing about um, child sexuality in general. And the figures who are most stigmatized in that relation tend to go back to your earlier question, to be trans women and to be more generally queers. Um, LGBTQIAA plus books are seen as dangers if they're on library shelves, um, along with Um, uh, books about black critical uh, scholarship and theory, which is an interesting pairing that I hope we'll have time to come back to. Um, But all of these constructions of the enemy of the child thus lead to a, a political logic whereby politics is always about securing the continuity of the order that exists now for the future of the child who will be alive then. But that child, of course, is never real. It's always a fantasized version of the childhood of the adult who is imagining that future. 
So it becomes a fantasy projection of immortality for the order as it is. Hmm. Uh, One passage I found very affecting um, in No Future is when you're talking about the, and I haven't seen the film, and I've no interest in seeing it, the the Tom Hanks film, uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. I remember you put put it really wonderfully that um, at at his his funeral, at his wake, there's a, a... uh, like an image or looping video of him as a child and you make a lot you make a lot of the of the loop or the staticness of the image because this is precisely the point almost is that the child cannot grow up the child of a capacity cannot uh, cannot grow up not least because of the possibility the child will grow up to be a queer um themselves that this is um so very you know uh, so so yes that the, the Yes, yeah, so we, we we exist under the under the tyrannical visage of this monstrous child of this of this um, totally idealized f- uh, formation of the child, which is um, has to be opposed to the actual to the not to the actual existence of real children as well because because of the fact that that children do not remain children you know uh, uh, the child you know in many you know if, if we, the child is in many ways the archetypal symbol not only of our notions of innocence but also of becoming of metamorphosis of growth and of change so we have to have the static frozen fossilized ossified divinized image of the child as the as as, as our master signifier uh, precisely to precisely to work against the, the 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 fact the raw fact of the becomingness of children and that's, and the becomingness of, of human beings at all ages of course no that's exactly right and you know it's it's not only that the child the child cannot remain innocent it's that the child never was innocent that innocence is the cage that is constructed for the image of the child as a way of trying to restrain exactly what you're talking about, that that process of becoming something else. But as with all biological processes as well, the becoming something else was always already there. It's not that it, you know, it's not as the right wing tends to think that it's going to stumble upon a book in the library and then as a consequence of that become something else. It's that it's going to unfold what was already implicit within it and that which is implicit within it. And this is what remains, you know, perhaps today more than ever, the most scandalous part of the Freudian legacy is that the child is always already a sexual being. It is always already a creature that has experiences of its own body and its own bodily pleasures in ways and in areas that the adult caretakers want to deny and especially want to deny insofar as, and this, you know, to talk about the scandal upon scandal of Freudian theory, uh, comes from the fact that Almost all children are introduced into the sexualization of their bodies by their parents, precisely by those people who give them baths, who um, who touch their their bodies in intimate ways, cleaning them after they've soiled their diapers, and producing sensations that are then going to um, uh, constellate around certain bodily zones that will be eroticized. Um, instead of recognizing, accepting that as a, as a legitimate and inescapable part of the becoming of human subjects, right-wingers want to imagine that sexuality is forced upon children by strangers to the family, by, uh, by, the, the, by books or by queers who are somehow um, 
seizing their children, introducing them to things in a, that they should not know, and thus literally adulterating them, forcing them to become adults before their time has come. Exactly. I remember on a biographical note. I remember when I was a child, there was. Um, are you familiar? Are you familiar with the long-running soap opera Coronation Street? I have not watched much of it, but I am familiar with it. <laughs> I, I enjoy that you have watched some of it, though. Um, <laughs> but when I was, I remember when I was, when I was a child, there was a, a a moment of national scandal where there was a gay kiss on it. It was, the, and it was the first male male. Um, uh, I, I don't. I don't. It wasn't the first same-sex kiss on British television. That was. Brookside, but I'm not sure if it might. Was it the first male? I have, I have no idea. But I remember this coming up and watching it as 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 a child, as a little boy with my parents and my mother slamming her hand over my eyes to uh, to keep to keep the image uh, away, which did not stop me turning out to be a homosexual. Uh, and for all I know, helped me along the way. But uh... if only she had been able to do it more quickly. <laughs> God, I hope my parents don't listen to this. Um, so, um, okay, we have, we have kind of supreme to the question a little bit. But the next question I had here is, um, and be as specific as you'd like, actually, what was the impetus behind writing? You know, when, when you sat sat down to write uh, No Future, what was the impetus to doing it at that moment? And what was the what was the reaction um, academically and culturally uh, to the work? So when I started No Future, it was in the late 1990s. Um, the homophobia that had accompanied the uh, AIDS epidemic was still rampant. Uh, Bill Clinton had signed the Defense of Marriage Act in America um, in order to placate, as he thought, the right wing. Um, there was a discourse, the discourse of the Catholic Church um, uh, pedophile priest scandals was intensifying at that moment. And um, living in Boston, the uh, Cardinal of Boston, Cardinal Law, as his name happened to be, um, was like many of his fellow clerics, insisting that gay marriage was a threat to the future of society and specifically to the, the health of children and was arguing against, for instance, things like even domestic partner health benefits, claiming that they um, endangered children. And it was outrage at the illogic of these constructions or at the um, failure to recognize the ways that children were being deracinated from the realities of human life and human experience in order to become weaponized as figures to prevent adults from having freedoms. That led me to think about the massive rhetorical war that was being waged on uh, the possibility of there being such a thing as an adult. In a certain sense, what I there's a phrase I used in the in the book that talks about the tyranny of the baby's face. No, it's the fascism of the baby's face is the phrase that I used. And in a sense, what we were seeing is is exactly the way the that fascism aestheticized culture, the way in which it used 
um, ritual and forms of aesthetic representation in order to mobilize mass political experiences. So the right was weaponizing the baby's face in a fascistic way to be used against the possibility of any of us ever acceding to the status of adult life and liberty. So with that as the uh, political background, I then began to think about this rhetoric of the child specifically in the rhetorical terms that deconstruction and my background in post-structural theory had led me to to uh, to do as a as a critic of literature, art, film, and culture. And what I came to to recognize is that in a certain sense, the queer is like a rhetorical figure in that what queerness does, Whatever, whoever the queer is, whatever the, the given culture identifies as the queer, the queer is always that figure that calls into question the literality of the meanings that a culture gives to itself and insists that there is a possibility of ironizing those meanings. So one of the central um, heuristic figures for me has always been in thinking about queer theory, Socrates, and the way in which Socrates, for his irony, an irony which he recognizes is necessary for the survival of a state as not just a fixed, stable thing, but as a continuously changing, or to use your word, becoming thing, the, the irony that's necessary for transformation is also going to be the irony that invariably leads to the thing that perhaps Socrates didn't fully recognize, and that is his trial and death. Um, the, the, the ironist is the one who, by stripping us of the thing we cling to as our I, truth, the, as the truth of our identity, is necessarily going to be the figure who is seen as, um, as was Socrates, as worshiping alien gods, as not accepting the normative logics of the society, and therefore, as in his case too, um, corrupting the youth. Yes. So there was a second part to your question, but I completely <laughs> forgot it. The second part. Uh, the second part of the question was what was what was the reaction when the book came out? Because I, I, because I, uh, w- Wikipedia tells me there was some there was some not small controversy, and um, yeah. So so yeah. What was the what what was the reaction to the publication of the book? Uh, parenthetically, always take Wikipedia with a grain of salt. Um, <laughs> um, though in this case, it is not untrue. There there was uh, an intense reaction on both sides to the book. It was um, highly divisive in uh, queer theory circles because at that moment, and to to this day, one might say the same is still true, at that moment, the central impetus of queer theory derived from Foucault rather than from post structuralism. 
And that Foucauldian aspect of queer theory was intent on thinking in about queerness in historical terms, in terms of its genealogies, and in terms of the ways in which it becomes possible to transform social orders rather than in the ways in which it reflects the um, rhetorical structure of social orders. So there were two major arguments made within queer theory against no future. And I'll, I'll address each of them briefly. The first was that it was pessimistic or nihilistic and that it denied the political efficacy of attempts to transform the social order. The second was that the child that it was speaking to, the child that was the image of futurity, was a uniquely white construction, and that therefore it had no relation to communities of color or to black subjects. And far as, as far as the first is concerned, it is true that No Future did not offer a political solution to what it saw as a problem that was not fundamentally a political problem. And I say it wasn't a political problem because In my reading, the status of lesbians or gays in a society is a political problem. That can be adjudicated through through electoral uh, work, through um, outreach, through changing of hearts and minds, um, just as can any, as can the condition of any minoritized subset of the population. But the problem of queerness is not a problem that's amenable to political amelioration because there will always necessarily have to be a queer as long as there is a community that is defined by its difference from the queer. As long as there's a community invested in its survival and has to localize something that is its threat. So To that extent, it is true that the diagnosis is one of structural antagonism rather than of political, um, um, uh, or rather than a recipe for political combat. And my response to those who claimed that it was nihilistic was to say, this is a book that's anatomizing the antagonism. How one responds to it is for other people to determine that those determinations no doubt will take place in a host of different political ways. My own thought is that invariably the structural antagonism will reproduce itself. It just means that the queer may not be the lesbian or the gay man. You know, they marriage rights for lesbians and gays, the passage of civil legislation that allows for Um, equal treatment and equal rights may well change the landscape in which lesbian and gays are able to operate in society, but it won't change the fact that someone else will be occupying the place of the queer. So the second argument that the child was indicatively white seemed to me to be a rather narrow misreading of the book that failed to recognize that um, any community and perhaps almost every community, will find a child that suits its purposes and will attempt to defend itself in relation to that child. Now, just recently, in a number of um, African nations, there have been extreme attacks on 
lesbian, gay, queer citizens. And not surprisingly to me, though perhaps surprisingly to some of the people who claimed that the child was uniquely white, the discourse that was used was that um, queerness is a Western imposition on our children, and that our children are going to be um, uh, deprived of their African birthright by being seduced into this Western decadence. Even in America, um, for many years, there was a right-wing campaign against abortion funded by people who no doubt had no great love for uh, Black communities in America. But the signs appeared across the American landscape that showed an, uh, a young African-American uh, child, sometimes it was you know, a, a newly born baby, and it would say, uh, the womb is the most dangerous place for a child in America or abortion is black genocide. So the, the, even the right wing could use the image of the black child for its purposes when it wanted to. Again, I feel like I'm using the word fascinating a lot, but but these, but these responses are just, are just fascinating and deep and, and, and are genuinely enthralling to listen to the, um, and this is something something that um maybe at me yeah actually well let me just think for a moment of how if i want to move on to the next question because i want because it's not on our list of questions but i did want to talk about bad education uh but i'm just wondering if i want to talk about that now or if um you know, we'll talk about it a little bit later yeah so because the next question i have here is um no future came out in 2004 unless i'm mistaken and if you were if you were doing writing it now, um, what would be different about it, if anything? Well, that's a really tough question, Sean, because um, I suppose if I were writing it now, it would be bad education, um, <laughs> since that's the book I just wrote. But, but in terms of the book itself, the saddest thing I can say is that I wouldn't really change anything, because unfortunately, all of the issues that it anatomizes seem to me only more pressing now than they did then. I mean, it's it's literally heartbreaking to see the way in which in state after state in America, governments are making care of transgendered youth illegal. Um, it's not just that books are being stripped from library shelves, which is horrific enough. It's not just that in Cal in Florida, I don't know if your listeners in England know this, but they have a law that you can't have in a classroom any books that have not been pre-approved by government boards. So you have spectacles of um, of elementary school classrooms with their bookshelves completely empty. It's so all of this is is heartbreaking enough. But the suicide rates among queer and trans youth are skyrocketing. There was just a report that about the, the rates of loneliness and sadness on the part of teenage girls in Western countries that is, is completely alarming. And it all has to do all. I, I retract that word. It doesn't all have to do, but much has to do with the way in which our culture is so perverse 
in its pretense of trying to protect young people from sexualization while insistently sexualizing them. Sexualizing them not in ways that conduce to the development of their sexual identities, but sexualizing them in ways that bully them into adopting particular relations to sexuality. So that instead of um, the possibility that some student might encounter a book on a library bookshelf that its parents might not want it to read, we now have all children being forcibly indoctrinated in sexual ideologies that conform to the anachronistic visions of the world uh, shaped by extreme elements on the right. So has the world changed politically since 2004? In many ways, yes. Has it changed ideologically? Not for the better. What we see instead is a rising tide of fascistic ideologies, and not, alas, just in the West. If we look at governments around the globe, the ways in which nationalism, sectarianism, and the intolerance of multiple perspectives or of irony, um, the way in which that's increased is truly shocking. And one last thought in this regard, you know, the, in some ways, the godfather of Western right-wing ideologies about sexuality is Vladimir Putin. And what we are seeing in France, Britain, and the United States is the uh, dissemination of Putin's legislative agenda from early in the 2010s, where he instituted a law that banned any representation or discussion of non-heteronormative sexualities first anywhere that a child might hear it. That effectively banned it from all news media and from public spaces. So though, as Putin often said, homosexuality is legal in Russia. It's legal, but it cannot be represented because once it's represented, it risks seducing or poisoning children. That's the model for legislation. That's the model for legislation throughout the United States that the right is pushing. Yes, uh, and it, this is um, spe- speaking from uh, my my uh, my own subjective experience here in Britain. Um, the in general, sort of the coarsening and the 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 strident reactionary turn that British politics has taken, in particular since two thousand and sixteen, is what one of the. Th- uh, um, one of the things I remember growing up was always this um, sense that um, you know, even when we had our, you know, when David Cameron became prime minister and we had our Conservative government, we would always there's a sense of you know, and this is again sort of like a snobbishness and a kind of a post-colonial snobbishness, with an old way of looking at the United States and saying, well, you know, no matter, we have our right-wing party in charge, but we've just had same-sex marriage, uh, you know, legalised. And what I'm saying is, you know, we had a movement away from a soft conservative liberalism or liberal conservatism um, influenced by, influenced by, of all places, some elements of radical Anglican theology from the 90s, actually, with us, its own conversation. Mm-hmm. And the coarsening of it has been de- has been desperately alarming. And, and it's reached its... Um, and it is around, um, again, like, as we already said, around transgender youth and trans women they have become the lightning rod for political um for political violence as well as just random acts of violence 
on the streets and the and and a, a notable political example of that recently was that um the scot you know our our devolved scottish parliament um voted for fairly modest reforms of the gender recognition act and which has resulted in westminster using a constitutional prerogative that it has not been used since devolution to strike you know, to strike that down essentially although it's still a matter for the courts but um even our Keir Starmer the leader of our of the Labour Party of our progressive party who really is a an astonishing one 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 does wonder how he stands up right having no spine it's um hey how and he how he has taken an increase you know his equivocation over trans rights has always been disgusting but um in particular him siding with our conservative government over this in in everything except in it no he's simply siding with it and in particular this one of the main sticking points of this is the fact that um the scottish parliament lowered the age whereby you can legally change your gender from 18 to 16 and starmer has said that he does think well i think that's too young personally i think that's too young and which again takes us back to what we've what we've already been discussing about the the terror of the possibility of the of the child growing up and being able to make a decision and the refusal to acknowledge the fact that children possess a sexuality that children have sex and have a sense of gender that have a sense of the performance of gender these are things that these are these are things that we do learn things that we are taught i rem- again i remember but uh but myself as a kid sort of like when i would um go around a, um, a girl's house to play like she had costume jewelry and i loved it uh but i knew on some level that this was i shouldn't however because i'm a boy and this is something that yeah i won't let my dad see this uh, and, and the fact i i festooned myself in rings now <laughs> is is a direct a direct response to that um uh-huh. <laughs> well no i think you're you're quite right and the you know it, I, i'm just mindful that t- today is the day that nicholas sturgeon has announced that she's uh not going to continue in in her role as first minister in scotland um but leaving the whole scottish issue aside i mean it, it does it does strike me that the anxiety, the right wing, look, let's face it, the right wing is really smart. It knows how to go for the jugular and the left doesn't. And that's, that's, that's not accidental because the, the left doesn't want to go for the jugular because the only way you can go for the jugular is by producing sharp binary oppositions. And that means that any theoretical mode of analysis that is predicated on taking seriously the complexities of difference and the way in which um, we don't live in a world in which we can simply affirm X at the expense of Y is always going to be a much harder sell than the reinforcement of what we think we already know is true. And, And the gender is one of those things that we think we know is true because it's been pounded into us from the outset. I mean, you know, when I was, I think this is probably true for you, though you're probably much younger than I am. But when I was growing up, there was no such thing as a gender reveal party for an unborn child. And now the idea that even before the child is born, they're already being uh, framed in gendered terms on the basis of, uh, of an 
of a fetal photograph is indicative of the fact that the prison house of gender is closing around us even before we exist to be subjects. So it's not surprising that vast numbers of people who don't really want their um, the, the ground of the reality they stand on to be shaken are going to say, well, but of course, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. And, and that's the fundamental difference. As you know, Spencer Tracy says at the end of um, Adam's Rib, vive la différence. Um, but of course, that difference is what we have constructed. And though we will never have the opportunity to know this, if we didn't live in a gendered world, if it were possible not ever to have been gendered, such that when you went to play at your friend's house, you wouldn't think I'm going to play at my uh, at a girl's house, but you're thinking I'm going to play at my friend's house who you know may have longer hair than I or not longer hair than I, may have a different body shape than I, but maybe not a different body shape than I in certain places or in certain ways. Um, you know, your your ears may be attached and hers may be detached. You maybe have a penis and maybe she doesn't. Who knows? But the the differences were not automatically reducible to the truth of gender. Then, of course, you would have played with whatever you wanted to play with, and it wouldn't have made any sense to think of it as the property of some ontological condition. And that's what bad education is about. It's about the non-ontology of queerness. It's about the fact that queerness is not something. It's the nothing from which social order and culture recoils. It's the insistence on the negativity, on the the sheer um, non-conformity to normative standards that is always conceptualized as reducing the world to nothing. If you do this, then nothing will mean anything anymore. Nothing will matter anymore. It will just be nihilism. But what queerness is doing is in a certain sense, and this is why the subtitle of the book is Why Queer Theory Teaches Us Nothing, is not only saying that Teaching itself is conservative insofar as it's always an attempt to shape or indoctrinate or to conserve an archive of knowledge and understanding, but also at the same time that what we need to learn is the place of nothing. We need to learn the insistence of that whole, H-O-L-E, in the social order, of that thing which has not yet been named you know, my students, when I'm teaching, and you've probably encountered this with people that you talk to as well, they think, you know, now we are enlightened. You know, we, this is one of the problems with so-called political correct students. They think, you know, now we know what we should and should not say, and we can uh, make sure we never say the wrong thing. And what I always tell them is, you know, be a little bit more generous to those around you, but also to your future self. Because 15 years from now, Someone is going to say to you, how can you say that? Because you're intruding on violently the self-identity of someone whose self-identity at this moment does not exist as such, has not been constituted yet, but will be down the road. 
And you will then have been the person who would then be canceled because, you know, of what you said back in 2023, before it was even a concept that you could recognize. There is always that void that we have not yet apprehended, that we have not yet named, and that we have not yet conceptualized. And that empty set within the set of the whole with a W is the location of what queerness is. It's the nothing that nonetheless is the engine, to go back to what you said earlier, of becoming. We're constantly becoming something else because of that nothing. We're, we're straying perilously close to the language of Heidegger here, and as uh, <laughs> and as something of a uh, of, of a Heideggerian or post Heideggerian by temperament, that uh, it delights me the image of the uh, the queer as the true herald of uh, of the nothingness uh, of the nothingness of the heart of being. Uh, only the queer is capable of uh, metaphysics. Um, the final, the final question I have on on my on the, on our list here, and we are coming up to we've we've crossed over the hour mark, so I'm certain that uh, you'll want to get on with your day soon. Um, the last question I have here today is what what is the current state of queer theory, and among contemporary queer theorists, and perhaps in particular new queerist uh, queer queerists, oh that's a, that's, that's, an <laughs> inter- I, that's an interesting little uh, little slip of the tongue, isn't it? I might use that of uh, of of the up and coming queerists. Um, whose work do you find very uh, very interesting? Who people might not have heard of, and looking into the future, which of course we must never do, but looking into the future, where can you see queer theory progressing? So that's. A huge question to ask at the end of a conversation, but an important one and a dangerous one. Dangerous, of course, because whoever I name, I'm going to leave someone out and I don't want to wound uh, people who I respect and who are friends. So let me take a slightly detourish way to answering your question. I said I would get back to the relation of um, anti-queer censorship and anti Black Lives Matter censorship. And one of the things that I think is most interesting in the current moment is the confluence of thinking about blackness and queerness. That's one of the major imperatives of bad education is to think with Afro-pessimist theorists about the way in which blackness and queerness are both um, attempts to give names to something that is... um, foundationally excluded from the register of ontology, so that both are are framed as that which is not allowed recognition within the register of the human or of human being. And in that way of thinking, there are a number of figures writing today whose works are bringing Blackness and queerness into conversation and tremendously productive ways. I think of Stephen Best, who has a book called uh, None Like Us, or of David Marriott, who is a a Lacanian critic and and one of our greatest writers about Fanon as well, who is writing um, a book on black sex, not black space sex, but black sex as one word. there are people like Tavia Nyango, um, or in a different register, uh, Sarah Ahmed is is doing important work. Um, you know, the in in thinking about trans theory, 
the work of people like C. Riley Snorton or Marcus Bay uh, is is extremely important to the way we take seriously the theoretical confluence of blackness as a space in which, as Hortense Spillers wrote um, decades ago, uh, ungendering takes place and queerness as a space in which a certain sort of hyper-sexualizing takes place. Um, There are all sorts of other people, Madhavi Menon, a brilliant scholar who has written books that open from thinking about uh, sexuality in terms of hetero-homo divide to thinking about uh, philosophical questions of difference and indifference and thinking about things like sexuality as it plays out in the partition of India and Pakistan. So one of the things that I think is most interesting about queer theory at this moment is how it's it's broadening its its vantage point and its perspective to see affiliations with a host of critical disciplines that don't immediately register as specifically related to what we think of as sex or sexuality, but nonetheless are in fact informed by and whose political determinations are played out in relation to the ways we think sex and sexuality. Thank you. Um, I am actually going to ask one last question, and uh, that is, um, what's your favorite horror movie? Oh. <laughs> considering, considering nominally, nominally, uh, this is a podcast about horror movies and philosophy is how I tend to describe it. Uh, just to put you on the spot. <laughs> I, you, I am that person that everyone hates who when asked, you know, if you had to take one book to a desert island, what would it be? And I'll sit there for hours, not, you know, would it be this one? Would it be that one? There's so many wonderful horror movies that I love. I mean, I just think about the horror movies that I've taught recently. Um, the Shining, um, uh, Cat People, um, uh, um, I just taught The Babadook in, uh, in relation to queer theory, which is an obvious uh, mm. uh, comparison. Um, uh, you know, is Psycho a horror film? Um, why not? Uh, it's it's the field of horror is so immediately open to anyone who is thinking about sexuality in theoretical terms. I mean, it is such a prime location for the ways in which we displace our anxieties about social organization onto those alien or queer figures that, you know, everyone from the creature in the, from the Black Lagoon to alien uh, becomes an embodiment of queerness in one way or another. Um, so, so no, I can't give you, alas, my favorite horror film, but, um, but there, the, you know, but horror is a wonderful genre. Yes. Well, what, what we'll do is in post, we'll just splice in you giving the correct answer, which is Hellraiser. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing that down so that next time I will know what the correct answer to that question is. <laughs> well, um, Lee Adelman, thank you so much for giving me uh, giving me your time uh, today. It's this, a pleasure. This, this date in February. Um, 
again thank you for thank you for joining us stay weird sean and keep it signally thank you great nice to talk to you Thank you.